This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hi, this is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and we're very happy to welcome you to another edition of the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, I'm very delighted today to have uh, as my guest one of uh, the younger associate ministers of Shiloh, uh, Brother Braylon Hyde, Minister Braylon Hyde, uh, who is doing great things in the Baton Rouge community. And I thought it would be good uh, to have Minister Hyde on our podcast today and talk about uh, his feelings, his attitudes about church, church life, this church, and things that are going on in the Baton Rouge community. Minister Hyde, thank you for sharing with us today. Yes, sir. Thank you for being here. Well, well, thank you for inviting me to be here. Yes, sir. (laughs) Talk about who you are. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Braylon Hyde for those who, who might not know who Braylon Hyde is. Tell us about it. Well, Braylon Hyde's story starts uh, April 1st, 1994 in Pascagoula, Mississippi, uh, about two hours, I'd probably say, east of here. Um, a lot of people associate Pascagoula either with one of two things. I either uh, people tell me about Ingalls Shipbuilding, uh, yes. which is now north of Grumman, or they'll talk about something that happened in the 60s about a UFO, and farmers <laughs> were talking about they saw a, a UFO in the sky. But, uh, but either way, Jackson County, Mississippi, Pascagoula, Mississippi is where I cut my teeth. Um, I say I was born, um, I guess, like the old book says, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Uh, I was born on the very same day that they buried my great-grandfather. Yes, sir. Um, So the family, it was definitely a day of mixed emotions. Um, but I just believe that somehow, I guess, spirit of the uh, man that whom I never had the opportunity to meet somewhat still lives in me. Um, I sometimes hear my aunts and uncles and, of course, my late grandmother, Mary Hyde, um, who instilled so much within me, you know, would kind of laugh and kind of say I would, I guess, take on Granddaddy Hyde's mannerisms and some of his phrases and, I guess, his personality. So, you know, it's funny how things work there. Uh, my father, um, who's in the military, and he's still serving in the military, so I'm 23, so be 25 years he served thus far. Yes, sir. Um, he and my mother are stationed in South Korea right now. So, Which branch? Uh, he's in the Army. Army, okay. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He's in the Army. And so, um, you know, my father always encouraged me to do positive things. Um, growing up, I can remember coming up to him saying all of these crazy things about my hopes, my dreams, what I want to be, whether it be a lawyer this week, a doctor next week, a firefighter the next week, you know. And after he just sit there and look at his son, you know, Google and talk about all these crazy little things that I want to do in life, he'd just say, okay, go for it. And so sometimes just going through different phases of my life, you know, I oftentimes just hear that, you know, my father's still saying, you know, well, hey, go for it. You know, as long as it was positive, and of course, as long as I got my schoolwork done, you know, and stayed out of trouble, you know, my yeah. father, you know, my father always felt as long as it was positive, you know, just go for it. Don't be afraid to pursue it. Um, I was heavily influenced by my grandparents growing up. Um, they were very, very involved on both my mother and my father's side, grandparents and great-grandparents. Um, so in, in regards to church, in regards to, you know, growing up as a young man and, of course, just realizing who I am. 
Um, I've never been one to uh, shy away from taking on challenges that I've always felt far greater than myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So many people don't understand, I guess, what pushes me a lot of the times when I want to take on new tasks, um, want to go for different positions, want to establish different clubs, maybe different organizations. Um, I'll always hear from older generations of, oh, you know, don't don't move too quickly or, you know, take your time. I guess it's just one thing with my generation is just that, okay, well, if, if this is a problem that's been going on since you were a child and since granddaddy was a child, since great granddaddy was a child, well, I think we've waited long enough. So, you know, just move out of the way and just kind of let us push it and let us take over. Um, I guess um, to describe myself, I'm just a product of, of my environment, and mm-hmm. I'm proud to say that because mm-hmm. I grew up in a very good environment. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was strict at times, but, you know, it was balanced and it was structured. Where does your confidence come from? Because you seem like a very confident, not cocky, but con- <laughs> a very confident young man. Where, where does that confidence come from? My grandparents, um, my grandmother used, my grandmother Mary Hyde used to always stand up in church uh, back when they used to allow testimony service. Mm-hmm. And after she would, you know, of course, say, praise the Lord, church, church, say praise the Lord, praise the Lord, church, hallelujah. <laughs> I just thank God for Jesus. So yeah. I first give an honor to God who's led my life, health, and strength, give an honor to the pastor and his companion, to everyone in their respective place. She, she would give the same intro and mm-hmm. everything. And me and my cousins are like, here she goes again. <laughs> but, uh, but at the end of every testimony, she'd say, you know, but I'm not worried about any of y'all. None of y'all have cared about anything I've said. I ain't worried about you because I know where I'm going. And I'm going if I have to go by myself. And then she'd sit down. And so early on, it'd be like, okay, well, sometimes in life, there may be some things you want to do that you might have to do by yourself. You know, you can't always maybe get approval from your friends, sometimes from your family, and you know, your your co-workers or or those you hang with. It wasn't rhetoric, it was inspiration. Absolutely. That's excellent. Absolutely. That's excellent. Now, tell me how you got to Baton Rouge. Oh, you, I'm you, sorry. You, you take me to Oklahoma to Mississippi. Tell me how you got to Baton Rouge. Um, uh, well, I was getting ready to go to college. Uh, probably first through the 10th grade, I'd always wanted to go to Morehouse okay. uh, from the inspiration of Dr. King. You know, being history reading about his life, I said, well, if Dr. King went to Morehouse, I want to go to Morehouse. And, and then... Um, when I, when I just started to research and look at different schools, um, I said to myself, I said, all right, well, my top three, when I get ready to go to college, it'll be Morehouse, it'll be Howard, or it'll be LSU. For some reason, I never understood why I wanted to just go to Louisiana. I had never been to Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Never. The only time I actually had been to New Orleans was one time when I flew into the airport one time for Christmas break. But other than that, I knew nothing about it. Um... And then it wasn't until I actually moved here when I enrolled at LSU, uh, one of my cousins who actually lives in Denton Springs, my cousin Ruben, who's like our family historian, has a lot of old documents, pictures, actually told me that the Hydes started from Louisiana. Uh, matter of fact, I want to say St. Francisville. Okay. Um, we were Newsteaders and Gilberts, and then somehow we made our way to New Orleans. That's how we married into the Hydes, and then... The Hides then, I guess, either for job opportunities, of course, everybody was getting hired on the shipyard in Pascagoula, Mississippi. So that's how we settled in Pascagoula and Malls Point and all over between Louisiana and Mississippi. And so when I found that out, maybe after a year of moving here, that's what made me go, wow. Uh, you know, because I, I, I just never knew. But something just said, just go to Louisiana. Okay. And so that's how I arrived here uh, okay. by way of LSU. And what did you major in at LSU? Uh, political science. Political science. Political science. There's the politician. <laughs> uh, tell me about your calling to the ministry. Yes, sir. Um, 
I guess there was always something about me that, that knew um, that I was just destined to just go to Sunday school, go to Bible study, go to church, because that's what Grandma said you're going to do. Um, and and I guess people just saw it on me at a very, very young age. Um, you know, I, of course, I was always the first one to volunteer to give an Easter speech or give a Christmas speech or participate in the programs and didn't have a problem talking and standing in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um and one summer, I'll never forget, my grandmother Mary Hyde sat me down uh, while my cousins were actually playing in the yard, but she told me to come on in, and she was sitting there at the table reading her Bible and, you know, cooking dinner and everything. And I said, hey, well, you know, what's going on, Grandma? And, you know, she said, I've just been sitting here. I've been praying, you know, about some things, and God's revealed this to me. She said, and you're going to be preaching before you reach the age of 15. So at this point in time, I had been maybe 9, maybe 10 years old, if that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, Oh, okay. Well, okay, and everything, and you know, but it still didn't hit me then. Sure. And then we lived in Lawton, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Um, it was Bethlehem Baptist Church, and for some reason, God had just been dealing with me. Like I just knew there was just something on the inside to where it says, "Look, you need, you know, there, there's something you need to do." Mm-hmm. And um, my father had just gotten stationed in South Korea. Then um, it was probably maybe his third or fourth time over there, maybe second or third time over there at this time. So it was me and my mom. And he had actually just left maybe a couple of days before that. So the altar call came up and uh, Pastor Gary Bender um, at the time, who was the pastor of Bethlehem, he, you know, he kind of did a Kind of like a, I guess a specialized altar call. He said, you know, so once he did the invitation and, you know, membership, he said, but, you know, there's somebody here, you know, that I just feel God speaking to me. And he's saying there's somebody here that is uh, afraid to answer the call that God has on their lives. And he said, you know, some of y'all are called to do this. Some of y'all are called to do that. He said, but some of y'all are called to preach. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay. And then it was like I just heard in my spirit, this is it. Mm-hmm. Go up there. It's time to accept your calling. So I told my mom to take me up there. Once again, this is a moment of what is he? What has he gotten himself into now? Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom had a slight cold that morning, so she had actually um, stepped out to just get a drink of water. But while I was walking up there, it was just every. I kid you not. It was like every row, somebody just started praising God. And I didn't even, I'm like, okay, well, maybe they're just being moved by inspiration. But I I had no idea. I had no idea. So, of course, by the time my mother gets in there, she's thinking I'm going up there, you know, for prayer, you know, for my father, protect the men and women he's serving with. And I go up there and accept my calling. And it's just one of those things, again, like, you always into something, but you know. (laughs) And so that's how how it started. I was was 12, and I preached my first sermon when I was 13. I didn't wait a year. Um, I accepted my calling at the last Sunday in March. I preached my first sermon the last Sunday in April, so it was only a month time span uh, because my birthday is April 1st. Okay. Okay. It's an interesting story. Very much so. Very much so. So you ran for mayor. Uh, as, as a student here, uh, and uh, you garnered a lot of attention throughout East Baton Rouge Parish running for mayor president, so much so that uh, the ultimate winner of the election, Mayor Sharon Weston Broom, was so impressed with you uh, that she asked you to serve in her staff. Yes. Talk about that experience. 
Running for mayor. Well, to tell you the truth, when I first moved here in 2012, I told everybody I'm going to run for mayor in 2016. I told everybody that as a fresh, hadn't lived a good week in Baton Rouge yet. And and, and why did you want to run for mayor? But, well, to tell you the truth, it, it was me getting in my car, of course, because, like I said, new town and everything. I'm in my car, and I said, well, you know what? I'm not going to use the GPS. You know, I guess it's a man thing. I don't know. Didn't want to ask for directions. I said, so I was just taking days um, when I have time either in between class or after class was over. Over. I just drive around Baton Rouge, you know, getting lost, trying to find which of the main streets, what ties into what, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. um, I really just noticed a lot of things because, of course, I lived in an apartment complex that was right next to LSU, walked right on campus. And so, of course, you're driving around South Baton Rouge, like, okay, we've got the mall over here. We've got the movie theaters over there. Oh, driving around on corporate. Oh, we've got all this here, got all the hospitals. And then I, I said, well, I'm trying to find out where Southern's at. And then, of course, I cross over North Florida Boulevard, and, and I just really noticed a night and day experience. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, how is it that in one city with so much history, you've got what they call the flagship University of Louisiana here, then you've got the flagship HBCU of Louisiana here, and apparently there's so much history, all these great people are supposed to be living in Baton Rouge. How in the world can we literally let one street divide landmarks of progress and then what I see to be landmarks of poverty. Mm -hmm. And I said, something needs to be done about this. Mm -hmm. And then, so of course, just researching, you know, local government, how it was structured, who's currently, you know, the mayor, how long they had been serving. And I was saying to myself, what, you know, what, what seems to be the problem. And so I just decided then, you know, well, instead of going to a hundred different community meetings and talking about the same problems, I said, you know what? I'm not going to be one of the ones who continues to run my mouth. I'm just going to decide to run for office. And so that's what did it for me. Wow. Um, When you started telling your friends, your colleagues, your classmates that you were running for mayor, what was their response? Oh, my friends were excited. They, you know, they were, because of course they said, well, if, you know, if you even had the, the uh, the gall, I guess, as we are in the, in church, to get into those <laughs> waters, then you know more more power to you. They say you know we you know we'll support you. Can't give you any money, but hey, we'll support you. Um, of course, when I would tell the older generation, um, I would either get. Uh, well, no, you don't need to run because, you know, you're too young. Right. Um, then I'd get, well, you know, you don't need to run because, you know, you're not from here. You know, you're an outsider. We don't like outsiders coming to tell us what to do and this and that. You know, get yourself established in the community first. Tie yourself in, this mm-hmm. and that. Or I would get, you know, well, you don't need to run because such and such is going to run for it. And then they say, so maybe you might think you need to run for for this. So. So, so I said to myself, I said, okay, Lord, if I'm hearing, maybe I'll just try to take some wisdom. And I said, okay, well, maybe I'll explore maybe other positions. Mm-hmm. So then I'm saying, okay, maybe I'm interested in running for school board. I'm hearing the same excuses. Then I mm-hmm. said, okay, what about state reps? Same excuses. What about mm-hmm. council? Same excuses as to why I shouldn't run. So I said, well, if I'm going to try to entertain everybody else's, you know, opinion on, well, maybe you need to run for this or run for that. Sure. But I keep hearing the same excuses as to why I should not run for those offices. Sure. I said, I might as well just go for the gusto and mm-hmm. run for the one I want. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, so that's how I settled back on my original decision to run for mayor. How do you, Minister Braylon <coughs> Hyde, couple your civic responsibility, your your call to civic duty with your ministerial call? You know what? I've I've heard it said that that my 
politics doesn't make me religious. My religion makes me political because if I'm truly invested in what it means to be a disciple of Christ, then I should be worried about the least of these. So mm-hmm. that means that's why I should be fighting for quality and affordable health care. I should be fighting to make sure that we have anti-poverty programs to help people be able to go from welfare to being well off. Mm-hmm. You know, I should be concerned with social justice. I should be concerned with the least of these. That's mm-hmm. what we're called to do. Right. Um, and so I really don't find any type of uh, differentiation um, in between the two. Because mm-hmm. if I'm supposed to be the man of God that God has called me to be, um, that's just one avenue that I believe that, that I can take. And as long as I remain true to my calling and true to myself and truly focus on serving my fellow man instead of just serving the pennies that go into my pocket from mm-hmm. certain individuals mm-hmm. you know, to fund campaigns, then I should be all right. You were raised in a United Methodist Church. You, at some point, became a part affiliated with Baptist Church. You're right. affiliated with what I could describe as a traditional black Baptist church as a member here at Shiloh. At 23, a lot of people your age have a lack of enthusiasm for organized religion and certainly for traditional churches. Right. Speak to that. Uh, you know, I, I have my opinion as as a 56-year-old uh, pastor who was raised in, literally raised in this church right. and have spent my entire life in the church. And I acknowledge the fact that my opinion may be skewed in, in based upon my experience. Give me your perspective as a younger man about your generation, your colleagues, your peers, and... Uh, their, their attitudes about organized church? Well, um, to tell you the truth, as I said earlier, I'm just a product of my environment. Um, we grew up old school. That's mm-hmm. what it was. You know, uh, me and my cousins, like I said, growing up in Mississippi, of course, everybody wanted to stay at Grandma Mary's house. Grandma Mary just had one rule. Yeah, you're more than welcome to come over and stay. Make sure your mom and them have packed your, clo- your church clothes because I don't care what you do Saturday night, but Sunday morning you go going to church. Mm-hmm. And so that was just in us. Um, so, you know, so for me, um, I guess for the generations, you know, we talk about traditional and uh, contemporary. I guess the majority of my generation, we just have that mindset of things just need to move a little quicker, um, not just in church, but just in life in general, from politics, from um, our careers. Um, as a matter of fact, I believe I've heard you said either in uh, Bible study or even in a sermon that, you know, the millennials, you know, they don't have the mindset of work 30, 40, 50 years and no. then retire. You no. know, we, we might give you a good 20, might give, you know, definitely give you a good 15 and we ready to sit at the house. Yeah, I, uh, and so. I was fascinated to learn uh, about the different ways of thinking depending upon which generation you, uh, you are a part of. Right. Uh, my, my parents' generation believed that you find a good job, hopefully one that you enjoy, right. but you commit yourself to that. You get all the benefits from that. That's where your insurance is going to come from. That's where your health care is going to come from. Right. Uh, that's where your retirement is going to come from. And at a certain age, you, you, you get to retire out of that and and live out a peaceful life. People from your generation, I'll, I'll work two months over here. I'll work a year <laughs> over here. I'll work three. And as soon as this no longer satisfies or meets my need or I've, if I see something else that I want to do, you have no fear in jumping from one thing to another. And, and the idea of 
security in one job over a long period of time does not seem to be high on the agenda for people of your age group. It's a completely different way of thinking. And that attitude does not just exist in the secular world, in the work world. Mm-hmm. It also exists within the church. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when, whenever uh, pastors, colleagues of mine get together and we talk about uh, concerns that we have within the church, it doesn't take long before it turns to young people. You know, how do we get younger people in the church? How do we get young people who are in the church to stay in the church? How do right. we get young people in the church to become involved in the church. Well, I'm talking to a young man who is involved in the church, who is called to the gospel ministry, who is involved in his community, and I'm asking you to help enlighten not just me, but those who are listening to this podcast as to the thought process that goes on. I guess it's, it's a lot asking you to speak for an entire generation of people, <laughs> but, but, but just tell me what, what, when, when you and your friends sit down and you talk, have these conversations, and I'm assuming you have these conversations, tell me what you talk about. Well, um, a lot of the guys that, that we sit and we have these conversations with, uh, with the local organization I'm a part of, known as the Next Generation Pioneers, uh, one of the main things that I found is that we don't find the church satisfying our needs um, in regards to addressing issues that really affect us. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in and, and, and a lot of traditional churches, or traditional black churches, you don't find too many like Shiloh that are willing to talk about health and wellness in regards to HIV AIDS and, you know, in regards to, you know, teenage pregnancy. You don't hear them talking about, you know, we need to be involved in social issues such as, you know, well, what is the church's response? If I'm a young African-American man looking at other young African-American men being gunned down senselessly by those who are supposed to protect and serve, and I come to my pastor and I say, hey, you know, so what am I supposed to do? I'm sorry, just telling my generation, we're just going to let the Lord work it out. We're going to sit and pray about it. That doesn't do it for us. Mm -hmm. So I guess with my generation, we we want to see more of an active role or at least some some true active solutions that not only that that are talked about, but that you all won't be afraid to involve us in. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I think that we see that now. Um, we, we, we want to be involved. We want to be active. But I guess the, 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 the gaps between the generational divides, you know, because you got the older generation in the church that says, well, no, we can't let Pookie get up here and join this ministry because, you know, they, they just untamed and, you know, they, they ain't trained and this and that. Right. But yet nobody's taking the opportunity to train Pookie mm-hmm. on, okay, this is how we can blend your energy and your enthusiasm with our traditional values and try to have an even mix. Mm-hmm. And and as a young and as young African American men, I think we just don't find I mean, and it's hard to say this, but Jesus just ain't enough mm-hmm. for this generation. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to, I mean, you, it's more than just talking about, you know, he died, he rose, he, he's coming back. I mean, that that's good to get us out for a sermon closer, but for the majority of us, okay, what is it that you're offering? Well, what is it that, you know, is going to help me um, not only fulfill myself as a Christian, but fulfill myself as an African-American growing up in some tumultuous times where it seems that African-Americans are labeled as public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. It seems to be open season. And when we just go to churches and all we're talking about is, well, let's just pray about it. And we're going to let the Lord work it out. And let's just, you know, watch, fight and pray. Okay. That just doesn't do that when, when somebody was protesting down the street from my mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. It's just not moving fast enough for us. Um, and I think that just plays so much uh, into our daily lives. Now, um, like I said, with more uh, resurgence of 
having African pride, traditional African pride. I, I, I think we sometimes think, okay, what is the black man's role in regards to the traditional Christian church? And now we have the benefit of all this technology to where as we're downloading these apps, we can go and Google some things as to whereas we're not just going to sit and accept what the preacher is just saying is, is truth and what is fact. And so, of course, when we're looking at the King James Bible and we're looking at all these other old historical or sacred documents and maybe things aren't lining up and we try to ask our, you know, elected officials, okay, well, can you explain to me why is it that the story of Jesus is still coming up in this story from a generation that was, you know, three, four or five thousand years before Christ, you know, just just different things, you know, like where does the black man stand in the Bible? Where, do, you know, in, in regards to family now, you know, what you know, what does that look like? I mean, we all want to create a Wakanda, I guess. Um, shout out to Black Panther. But but how do we get there? Because regardless, it's not that we want to leave spirituality out of our lives. Is is just how how do we navigate those waters now? And I guess that the message is just not resonating with my generation because we don't I don't know we just don't see the life application. I guess uh, I can understand how that can be frustrating. But my first response to that is the traditional church has not spent enough time giving the full message. Mm. Of the gospel, and I ain't talking about full gospel Baptist or or, or anything like that. But th- there is more to the message of the gospel than by and by when the morning comes. Now, right. That that's the stereotypical uh, view that that many people have that that it's a wait and let the Lord work it out. Jesus was radical, and and I think that the traditional African American church has to highlight the radical nature of Christian love without limit and without restriction, which is what Jesus espoused. Agape love is a radical concept. Right. It, 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 it's far beyond the traditional concepts of love that, that we put forth. And, when it means loving your and Jesus said, love your enemy. Right. That's radical. Jesus says, don't fight to keep possessions that people are trying to take from you. If they need it so bad, if they want it so bad, give it up to them. What's the first thing that, that is said about the early church after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? They sold their possessions and goods and gave to everyone as, he, as they had need. In a capitalistic society, that, that, that simply <laughs> is, d- doesn't work. But th- there is a radical nature to the gospel that I think uh, is diluted in the way that it is presented. And, and so I can certainly agree with you that uh, when, when, when younger people say it's not just enough to talk about by and by right. when the morning comes. But I wish that younger people would challenge us from within the church mm. to lift up the, 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 the more radical aspects of the gospel nature. Jesus was a social justice messiah. Right. 
I came to liberate those who are captive, to to set them free, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I came to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears. Jesus fought against the establishment. We're we're we're, we're about to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, but. Uh, on, on on that Palm Sunday, after he rode into the city, he goes to the temple and he clears out the temple from all the money changes. He he moves religious orthodoxy out of the way because he says that they're actually hindering the work of the Lord. I I wish that the traditional church, which I think Shiloh is, uh, would spend more time talking with people of your generation, uh, my son's generation, you and my son are are, are roughly the same age, talk about how we can share the gospel message in a more effective manner and, and allow that gospel message to motivate us towards change within our communities. Right. I don't think that it needs to be an either or. I think it can be of both. And and I do understand that 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 there is an inherent fear uh that exists within certain people especially when they reach a certain age uh of confrontation. Uh and and the ramifications of confrontation. And I understand that people of a certain age, younger age don't have such fear. And 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 there are two there are two things you can say about that. You too crazy uh, to, 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 to recognize the fears that exist uh, within that confrontation or you're too inexperienced to, to recognize the fear. It's like you said, everybody was telling you don't run, it's not your time, wait your turn, right. get more experience, what have you. And I, you know, I appreciate the boldness. I appreciate the brashness. Uh, what I don't appreciate, and I'm not sensing that from you, I'm just pontificating now uh what 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 i what i don't appreciate is the put down attitude that exists within many of of that generation uh, of your generation uh it says that the church has outlived its usefulness and 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 uh we need something else one of the things that that it shows is that while you all are exposing yourselves to uh knowledge information mm. uh you're you're still not getting the full picture because if, if if you got a full picture of of christianity the idea that jesus is a white man's god is a myth mm. uh, uh jesus was celebrated by black folk thousands of years right. ago uh the the judaism was was a religion of people of color thousands of uh, of years ago so so the idea that religion uh, that that christianity is, is is a white man's religion that was thrust upon black folk belies african history and and right. if you did any real research of african history you come to to understand that what happened was westernized christianity mm-hmm. european christianity took the forefront of the christian movement and has helped to shape uh, Christian theology and Christian thinking across the world. But Western theology and Western Christianity is not the only Christianity that's out there. Mm. And I think that if we did more research, for those who are interested in the connections between theology and heritage, then go back and do the research and look at uh, uh, how 
Eastern Orthodox Christianity uh, divided, separated itself from Westernized uh, Roman Catholic theology uh, not long after, uh, relatively not long after uh, Christ, and developed in its own way. And when you see that, you'll stop saying that Christianity is a white man's uh, religion uh, right. that was thrust upon us. And, and, and this whole idea of, of we're looking for something is right there in front of you. You know, it's right there in front of you. Uh, the social justice components of the gospel of Christ, are, we highlight it every Sunday. We, we don't just, we, we end up at the cross. We end right. up with he died and early on a Sunday morning he rose. Mm -hmm. But before you get there, you talk about the fact that he healed the sick and he caused the lame to walk and right. he caused the blind to see and he threw out the money changers and he said, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but render unto God what belongs to God. And he taught people uh, about the importance of walking of faith. Right. And it is troubling to me, not that people of your generation have the energy that you have. I, I, I applaud the energy and the intellect uh, that, 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 that you all have. Uh, I applaud that. I, I'm troubled by the fact that you're so quick. Again, not you. I'm majority, <laughs> but, but people of your generation are so quick to be dismissive of the traditional right. church. With that being said, and, and, and I know that I'm sounding like an apologist for the traditional church, but, no, but no, I'm no, a no. part of the traditional church. Right. And I'm not trying to, to, to be an apologist as much as I am trying to state the case for the generations coming together and finding common ground. Right. As opposed to this idea on our end, y'all wait your turn, right. and on your end, y'all get out the way. Right. <laughs> You know, and, and and I know that's an oversimplification of it, but but sometimes that's how it feels. My generation is, is telling you all, you you young whippersnappers need to just sit and wait and right. learn something and watch us and grow. And I, and, and y'all saying, well, y'all the ones who messed up the whole doggone thing. Y'all get out <laughs> the way, and 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 we're gonna fix what you all messed up. Right? Is there a way in your mind that that there can be synthesis? That there can be uh, collaboration, that there can be uh, cooperation within the generations. And and for the, and, and I know that other people uh, in your generation are, 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 are exploring other religions besides Christianity, mm -hmm. and, and it's not just limited to Islam or Muslim. They're, they're exploring all kinds of religions. They're exploring the ideas of spirituality uh, as opposed to organized religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and you know, everybody has a right to, to pursue their own path. But is there in your mind a place for synthesis and collaboration and cooperation within the generations within Christendom? You know what? I absolutely believe so. Um, and one way that 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 has to happen is really everybody just needs to go back to basics. All generations need to go back to basics in terms of learning how to communicate with one another. And I think that's really the problem with with all generations is that we have a lot of people um, and some who are in very influential positions who simply just do not know how to communicate. I think if we actually were able to have more open and honest and um, real dialogue, mm -hmm. nothing that's sugar-coated, nothing that's fanned out, I mean, because Really, when you get down to it, everybody has something to say about something. Mm -hmm. No, nobody truly just has nothing to say about it. Um, perfect example. Um, I'll never forget um, the Next Generation Pioneers. Um, every other month, we choose a uh, local black church to go and we visit. 
Uh, we actually was at uh, Pastor Riley Harvest Church, and instead of having a traditional church service, we had what we called a man cave Sunday. Uh, a few of us, a part of the Next Generation Pioneers, we sat on a panel with um, healthcare uh, professionals, those who were educators, some who were just regular community advocates. Mm -hmm. And some of the issues that, that we got hung up on, well, one main issue was, oh, it's not a generational problem. It's not necessarily this and that. It, it, it was literally from the first question, um, as soon as we, we, the younger generation began to answer that question, you automatically felt the, the pushback, felt mm -hmm. the resistance, felt the, oh, you know, we tuning you out. You know, we just automatically going to tune you out, mm -hmm. which I don't believe needs to be the answer because in, in any opinion or, 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 or suggestion that we give is going to come from our reality, mm -hmm. um, whether that be on the outside looking in, and then you got to ask yourself, well, why is it that we're only giving it from an outside looking in perspective? Mm -hmm. Because we're never invited inside. Mm -hmm. We're always told about what happens inside, or, or we're put on program, you know, maybe sit at the table, but but nothing is truly valuable with what we have to say. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so, especially when I ran for mayor, you go to all these different forums, you go to all these different debates, and there's never really any young involvement. Um, right now, I'm working with Dr. Lou and their movement with the Louisiana Poor People's Campaign. Mm -hmm. And I've been in the planning meetings, and I said, the last planning meeting, I said, I'm looking around, and I'm the only person of my generation right. here at this table. Right. But you all tell us to take um, examples from, from your generation. Well, when I look back through history, I see that when it came to the civil rights movement, voting rights, you all involved young people. Young yes. people were actually with you, shoulder to shoulder, lock, yes. stock, and barrel, yes. trying to push for these changes. Yes. But it seems now that, like I said, we'll get invited to the table, but maybe the only time we may speak is, okay, everybody go around the table, introduce yourself, tell us where you're coming from, and this and that. And it's like, okay, we're glad you're here. And then the conversation moves, mm -hmm. and all suggestions move quickly, but nothing is is coming back around to say, okay, and how do we include the young people in this? What is it that you all can do? That way, when another Alton Sterling situation happens, you don't have all of these splinter groups because mm -hmm. you have the older generation saying, well, when Alton Sterling happened, all y'all wanted to do was go out there and protest, and as you can see, nothing got done, but when then you hear other other people say, well, you know, the older generation say, well, we were actually talking to some elected officials and trying to get some things uh, matted on the ground. Well, what happened to us coming together mm -hmm. as a collective? Mm -hmm. We understand a lot of people in the old generation, y'all can't go out there in March, especially mm -hmm. not in the heat of summer in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we have the energy and our bodies can, can do that. Mm -hmm. But why can't we... And it's always, um, when I go to a forum and I always ask the question is, why can't we take inspiration from the past while still building from the future? If you're saying our wrong way of protesting is wrong, well, show us the effective way of how you got it done. Mm -hmm. Show us how to be consistent. Mm -hmm. Show us how to be um, aggressive yet, yet very strategic. Show us how to have those on the front lines marching, singing, we shall overcome, while also being able to strategically talk to our local, state, and national officials on how we get legislation changed right. so that even though it may seem on in the from the outside looking in that we're on different levels, but everybody still has a one consistent message. We're still pushing for the same thing. Mm -hmm. I believe one of the main reasons why my generation has shied away from the church is that we, we kind of group everybody together. It's just that um, when, when we're told, yeah, if you need 
guidance, you need mentorship, you need help, you need assistance, go to this group. And so we go to that group and they disappoint us. And then we go to that group and they disappoint us. And right. then they say, oh, y'all need to know the importance of voting. Y'all need to go out and vote. Okay, well, then we go and we vote and y'all say we should be happy because we get our first black this or our first black that. And then they sit in office for 12 years and nothing on the black side gets done. But you're Sorry. not talking about everybody. No, no of course not. <laughs> of course, absolutely not. Of course not. Of course not. I'm, you know, I'm clearly talking about, you know, other people in other systems, states. Systems, yes. Yeah, yeah just, just the systems of it. Right. And, uh, it, it, and it's kind of hard for my generation to take um, for us to still say, well, you know, just, you know, just be happy we got him and or we got her or well, we have these people in these particular, but they're not doing anything. Mm -hmm. And so when we can't go the political route and we can't go the grassroots route and then we try to go the church route, but the, we, then we come to find out that, well, the church doesn't want to take action because the pastor is friends with this person. So we don't want to hurt their feelings because we sit on the same committee and I've been knowing their son. They knew my father. They knew my grandfather. Right. So it's like. Well, where do we go to, right. to, to try to get the support and the help right. that we need? Because when we sit down and we have these uh, tough conversations, we're actually operating. My generation is operating from a mindset of, look, enough is enough. Right. We, we've had enough pain. We're, we, we don't want mom and daddies. We, we, we don't want to have to go through what mom and daddy's generation went through. We don't want to have to go through what grandmama's and granddaddy's generation went through. Y'all been fighting for... Uh, civil rights, voting rights, social justice, ever since Reconstruction. Mm -hmm. But you still want to tell us to wait our turn. No, no, no. Enough is enough. Mm -hmm. this, this, this does not need to carry over. And so I guess, yeah, we need guidance. Everybody needs that older wisdom so that we don't make the same mistakes that past generations have, have learned and lived through and were able to be very effective. But I think when we initially start having these conversations, they, they turn out being a lost cause because somebody on either side is automatically tuning someone out as soon as they say the first sentence. Sure. And, and, and really with that, uh, we're, you know, we're right here hardening our hearts. One of the things that uh, I'm sure you know and, and many of your colleagues uh, know, uh, but perhaps not the larger audience knows, is that, you know, the church wasn't united in the civil rights movement. Uh, Dr. King and uh, his colleagues, uh, Andrew Young, Ralph Abernathy, uh, other clergy uh, of that generation and of that time, they ran into a brick wall. Uh, our National Baptist Convention split oh, over... Wow. The, the issue of civil rights. Wow. Uh, uh, Dr. J.H. Jackson, who was president at the time of our National Baptist Convention, considered uh, Dr. King's message and methodology to be far too radical, far too progressive. Uh, and ultimately, uh, Dr. King and many others, including the great uh, Gardner C. Taylor, uh, uh, legendary preacher, uh, uh, pulled out of the National Baptist Convention, and that's how the Progressive National Baptist Convention uh, got formed. Wow. So the it, it, it's it's mythological to say 50 years later that everybody was a supporter of Dr. King. Uh, truth of the matter is, Dr. King's popularity was at a low point when he was assassinated. Wow. Because he dared to say 
that Lyndon Johnson was wrong uh, to drag America into the Vietnam War. And a lot of people who supported Dr. King uh, when he was talking about integration and civil rights in, in the South uh, moved away from him uh, because they thought that Lyndon Johnson was the best thing that had happened to black people uh, since sliced bread. Uh, you know, everybody, everybody these days <coughs> revise history and talk about the Kennedys. And, and the Kennedy administration, the truth of the matter is, Lyndon Johnson did far more as president for uh, African-American people in this country than, than did the Kennedys. Uh, but Dr. King was not universally loved and, and uh, lauded the way that he is today at the time of his assassination because he dared to stand up and speak out. And I bring all of that up, not to try to give people a history lesson, but only to say that the friction that exists within generations is not new. Right. It, right. it, 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 it has existed uh, forever. There's always a group that says, don't move too fast. And there's always a group that says, we're not moving fast enough. Right. And there is always there has always been a friction that exists between those two groups. Uh, so I think that there is always going to be the need for us to come back to the table and to do more than say, we invited you to the table, but now don't say nothing while you're at the table. Just, just right. sit there and be polite. You know, the way your parents used to say, you just sit there, don't, don't, don't say nothing. Right. You, you just sit there and, and act like you got some sense. Uh, no, we need to find ways to talk to one another uh, without talking past one another, without being dismissive of one another, without being condescending toward one another, and without losing fellowship with one another. Uh, and I think that once we are able to find that blend of youthful vigor, intellect, brashness, and boldness, and couple that with seasoned wisdom and insight and uh, influence, I think that you've got a powerful combination uh, there. Uh, but it's a it, 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 it's a it's a collaboration that requires constant attention, and it requires constant commitment. You know, w whenever we we have situations like Alton Sterling uh, uh, rise up in this community or in other communities, uh, quickly, a white group and a black group want to come together and they want to sit down and and they right. want. And, and, and they want to talk about how we can get through this and why people want to say, yes, we know that there's a history of racism in this country and we want to overcome that and we're not like that uh, today. And there are black folk who, who seem glad that they want to acknowledge the fact that there was a history of racism and, and yes, we want to come together with you too. But once the the show is over, and that's what I call it, once the show is over, we, we, we do something where we come together and we lock arms and we sing, we shall overcome and kumbaya, then they go back to their place and we go back to our place mm -hmm. and the whole thing starts up all over again because there is no commitment to the hard work of dialogue. Right. 
of, of, of actual regular coming together. Change is painfully slow, which for people of your generation, I understand the difficulty in accepting that. Change ain't going to come just because you want it. And, and, and there's going to be pushback if you try to push it to go too quickly. At the same time, change ain't going to come just by sitting there saying bye and bye when the morning comes either. Right. Uh, there has to be a, a decided commitment that we're going to thrust through this. And, and, and no, we're not going to take no for an answer. We're, we're not going to just sit idly by and, and say, we trust you uh, that, that change is going to come when you think the time is right. And just like we're not committed to dialogue within racial groups, we're not committed to dialogue within generational groups. Uh, uh, we, we, we pay respect to one another. You know, I, I respect your youth. You respect my age. Uh, I respect your intellect. You respect my wisdom. That, that, that's the talk that we give. But, but there's no real conversation, and the conversation doesn't last very long. The, the, there has to be a commitment to protracted lengthy, painful, invasive mm. conversation, dialogue, where we break down barriers within one another, where we call one another out on things. And nobody gets up and walks away when we call one another out, uh, where, where, where we recognize that uh, uh, there's some issues that we need help in. The idea of being vulnerable and, and, and of saying that I don't have all the answers, that I don't know everything, right. that I need somebody else to help me to see this from a different perspective, that's frightening to a whole lot of people. Mm. It's amazing to me how hard it is for some people to say, I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> you know uh, somebody comes to you and asks a question, and we think that we're obligated to, to provide an answer. And the truth of the matter is, we don't know. Right. It's, it, 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 it's a challenge. But I have been impressed with, with the energy and the intellect and the organizational skills that people from your Next Generation Pioneers Group have shown uh, within this community, their commitment to one another, their commitment to this community. It, it has been an impressive thing uh, to witness, and I know that I've only seen little surface incidents of it, right. but it's been an impressive thing. You're 23 years old. Do you see yourself being a Baton Rouge resident at 33? Or at 43? To tell you the truth, I do. Um, my, and my dad asked me this. I'll never forget when he came back from overseas. I think he was in Afghanistan this time. When he came back, probably after my freshman year of college, he came and, you know, I'm driving around trying to be the little tour guide, you know, showing him that, hey, your son found his way around pretty quickly. And, and uh, we're just driving around, and he finally asked me, he said, you know, could you see yourself living in Baton Rouge? And without hesitation, I said yes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I've been able, because for some reason, I just feel a connection just to Louisiana in general. Mm -hmm. And then when I just found out this is really where my roots came from, mm -hmm. well, at least my American roots came from, mm -hmm. um, 
it, it only drove me to just to just be a part. Um, and, and I feel as though that I can definitely live out the rest of my days here in Baton Rouge unless something happens. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, if economics just gets too bad and you've got a job offer, make a million dollars a year somewhere else, then I mean, you know, sure. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I'll come back to visit, but, you know, you have to go to be able to provide for yourself. But um, right now One I do One of the frustrations that, that uh, uh, I have had over the span of my years serving as pastor of three churches is the fact that a lot of young African-Americans feel the need to leave Baton Rouge in order to achieve economic success. Uh, uh, Houston, uh, you might as well call Houston Baton Rouge West. It's true. Because there are a whole lot of Baton Rougeans who live in Houston, but it's right. also true in Dallas. It's also true in Atlanta. It's also true in uh, Nashville. Uh, you know, and and so I'm I'm curious as to uh, people of your generation. Uh, is, is there any feeling? Is there any hope that you can achieve the level of success that you want to achieve and still be a resident of, of this community? We feel that, yes, um, really because of just basic biology. Um, if we eat right and if it's God's will, we, we will outlive you. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and some days really, and, and I, I say that, of course, to be a little bit, you know, in, in jest, but seriously, at the end of the day, sometimes we do find those moments, especially me and the guys, you know, we'll come together and we'll, you know, we'll talk about all these issues. Well, we try to do this over here and they're still not listening to us. They don't want to support us, but, you know, they want us for photo ops. And, and and sometimes Des, he literally just has to stop the meeting and say, you know what? We have to remember, we're going to outlive these people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's really the only thing we have left to hold on that, you know what? Yeah, we're, we're just going to wait you out. Um, if, if you don't want to give it to us, if you putting up walls that won't allow us to take it, that's all right. Well, we'll just let, we'll just keep saying good morning day by day. And like you said, that's when we probably do endorse the by and by mindset mm -hmm. of let's just pray and wait. And mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, it don't take too long. And, and, and God doesn't allow you to be like Adam living to be 900 years old. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, that those are some things that drive us. But most importantly, I think my generation, yeah, you know, yeah, we'll transfer jobs every five minutes. But I think when we truly find something that we are really dedicated to, um, we see that as a challenge. I've always been one to embrace challenges, always been one to take on tasks that many thought was greater than myself. And so I say, well, instead of just, you know, it's, it's so much easier to say, I'll go to Houston, I'll go to Atlanta, I'll go to Miami, I'll go to New York. But at the end of the day, nothing is going to get better if everybody with all the talent, the energy, the mindset, the drive is just taking that somewhere else that's already established. Mm -hmm. And I think for my generation, at least those who are really dedicated and staying in Baton Rouge and have the mindset of, no, I'm going to be here until something changes that would force me to move. I think we want to be here to say, you know, when we're on the porch. By the time we are old and gray and our grandchildren and stuff are walking around what we want to call the Baton Rouge Wakanda or, or, or Wakanda South, that we're like, yeah, you know, you see that building over there? We used to have our meetings, you know, over there back when 
when you know this health facility was just nothing but a but a figment of our imagination mm-hmm. but we worked for it. but because of our tireless work of of working with uh, the faith-based community uh, the, the the political arena the healthcare arena we were able to pull it together and now y'all have this charity hospital here you know there was a time where you know we, we didn't even have all these grocery stores here in north of florida boulevard we even have these community gardens to where you get fresh food but because we stay dedicated we stay the work we want to be able to look back and say this is what we were this is what we did mm-hmm. um like i said from our grandparents generation our great grandparents generation they have the benefit of being a part of that generation that look because of our work, this is how y'all have the voting rights. This is how y'all have the Civil Rights Act. This is how y'all have fair housing. So that's something that they have in history. Mm-hmm. They can say that it took us as collective effort. Mm-hmm. Now, will it be legislation for us? You know, I'm, I'm, that I'm not sure of. Will it just have to be the physical representation of there was nothing there, now there is something, and it was because of us raising enough sand that made people finally go, all right, mm-hmm. Um I don't know, but but we want we want some type of fulfillment to say that we made um, our community not only better for us but for generations that will come after us. But what but what's really discouraging, um, and, and and I think I, I really just go back to last year um, when when you have so many young entrepreneurs, young African American entrepreneurs who are more than willing to come here, get thousands of dollars in debt to be educated here, whether they choose to go to BRCC, LSU, or Southern University. But when they get their degree and they want to put it to work in their community, um, just to see what just happened in city government last year. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that you, every second and fourth Wednesday you see millions of dollars in contracts being passed every month going to the same corporations but you crucify people to get pennies on the dollar of of a contract for no apparent reason you didn't that it's not they weren't qualified it's not that they haven't been successful so so of course when my generation is looking at this it's saying you know we have black leadership we we have the capabilities to do it but yet for some reason, there there's just one wall that there's going to hold the line. It's like fighting the last war, you know. And and, it's and, and it's all, it's all I guess war. just trying to, uh, you know, uh, just trying to navigate those walls. It's a system, right? And and systemic change. You know, the idea of being frustrated, I think people can understand and appreciate. The idea of wanting to see uh, overhauls. In, in policies and procedures. I think people can understand. I think that what frustrates people, your generation, my generation, every generation, mm-hmm. is the fact that change is so incremental because systems have been put in place to prohibit change. Right. Uh, Today's paper is, is, is a clear example of what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, these police officers who have been uh, told that no charges would be brought against them either from the federal justice system or from the state justice system uh, are now awaiting uh, the decision by the chief of police uh, with regard to policies and procedures of the Baton Rouge Police Department and whether or not they will be terminated. And today's paper, today's advocate, is saying that if they are terminated, that they have remedies to their termination Mm -hmm. that uh, could protract 
such a decision for years. Right. Uh, because systems have been put into place that make it extremely difficult to terminate a police officer in this community. Right. Now, that's not a matter of people not wanting change. That's not a matter of people not marching for change. That's not a matter of people not calling for change. That's a matter of people running into a system that says you can call for it till hell freezes over. Right. We're not going to allow change to take place. So then the question becomes, how do you change the system? And that's where the real work begins. And, and this is the frustration that I sense people uh, of my generation and older feel when, when, when they feel like they are being unfairly criticized mm -hmm. because change has not come fast enough. Somebody's saying, do you know what it takes in order to bring about change? Right. That, that, that it, it's more than just talking about it, and it's more than just taking the steps of the capital, that for change to take place, you have to work a system mm -hmm. that allows for such change. And the fact that you have some African-American representation in the state legislature does not mean that you have a sufficient amount of African-American representation in the state legislature in order to bring about that change. The right. fact that you have some African-American uh, representation in the halls of city government does not mean that you have sufficient African-American representation to bring about that change, because it's not about the people. It's about the system that has been set up. Absolutely. And so then the question becomes, are we willing to work for the next 30 years in order to bring about a change to the system? And what avenues will actually bring about that change? It's the reason why the civil rights movement moved to the federal court system to seek relief for what was going on in Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia mm -hmm. and in Louisiana and in other states across the nation. Because federal laws trump state laws. Right. And local laws. And, and even when the federal laws were put into place, it took federal uh, officials and federal and federalized military in order to get states and communities to actually enforce the federal laws. Absolutely. What happened 50 years ago is going to have to happen again. Louisiana legislature isn't going to change because black folk march on the state capitol. They're going to let you march on the state capitol. They're going to say, okay, they had their march. <clears throat> Let's get right back to what we've been doing. Right, it's, going to, it's going to take a, 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 a systemic change within, within our communities. And that requires protracted, prolonged effort mm. and, and thrusting and pushing. And, and it requires that we find ways to come together. And it'll be your children that will actually be the beneficiaries of the changes that we're talking about and will probably be the ones who, who see it actually happen. I'll be dead. Wow. I, I'm 56 years old. I'll be dead before it changes. And, and I got sense enough to know that. But I'm willing to spend what's left of my life fighting for that change, knowing what is it Dr. King said, I may not get there with you. Right. But I know that we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, there, 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 there's... 
a generation of people. There are millions of African-American people who, who have fought for a promise that they will never see fulfilled because they believe that your generation and generations behind you are worthy of that change. And for some, it's, it's infuriating to be told, well, y'all just need to get out the way and we're going to fix this thing. Like, 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 we, we ain't done nothing. We, we, ain't, we ain't been here. We, we, we haven't put... A, what do you know about what it is that we have actually done? Right. And, 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 and so that's where the clash comes in. I wish we would learn to talk to one another and talk respectfully right. to one another. I don't have a right to be dismissive of your generation. I don't have a right to tell you, y'all just sit over there and, and, and wait. But you don't have a right to tell me, y'all ain't done nothing. And if this wasn't a church podcast, I'd be saying something else. Y'all ain't done enough. Right. And, 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 and clearly, y'all tired. So y'all get out the way. And the young folk are going to come and, and, and take it. You know, the, the, these are, are, are repeated chants that go from one generation to the next. I once was the young folk. Right. And now I'm not. One day you're going to wake up and realize you ain't the young folk either. And somebody else is going to be coming along saying, Minister Hyde, you need to step out the way so that right, we can right. so, so, so that we can fix this problem that, that y'all, you know, we appreciate what you all have been trying to do. But but y'all ain't got it done yet. So we're we going to get it done for you. It's it, it, the, the, the generational divide uh, that that keeps us from unifying and bringing the best of our energies to the forefront in order to bring about the changes that are necessary have to be overcome at some point. Yes, indeed. I'll I'll never forget, I was in ninth grade when uh, President Obama was elected. And of course, um, like I said, at this point, every, you know, no matter where we lived, I always went back home to my hometown, mm-hmm. um, you know, for the summer. And I would enjoy, you know, being around my grandparents, my great grandparents, you know, listening to their old stories. But I'll never forget when he was running and I was asking my uh, great grandfather on my mother's side, and my great grandfather on my father's side, both of them World War II vets and both of them actually passed this past year. Um, but I asked him, I said, you know, do you believe that, you know, th- th- he's, he's going to get it? You know, you believe he'll get it? And, and I had one grandfather who, who was, yeah, he said, yeah, you know, I'm going to vote for him. I can't, I can't wait for election day. I'm going to vote for him. And he, he going to go all the way. Then I had another grandfather said, uh, no, he, 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 I really don't see him getting the nomination. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, because I think America, when they got the choice of a white woman and a black man, they'll give it to that white woman just to keep us out of it sure. and everything. And then, and then I asked maybe shortly before the election, after he got the nomination, same grandfather, he said, yeah, he might get it, but they might kill him for it. And and so I said, but that's, you know, th- that was really interesting to me, because of course, me, my generation, we're saying, yeah, I mean, this is going to be something. This is historical, even though we probably didn't really appreciate it at that point in time, mm-hmm. you know, but we were able to see two um, terms that he served and really have a great appreciation for it now, but it was interesting to me to say, now, 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 Granddaddy Williams and Granddaddy Taylor, both World War II veterans, both grew up during the Civil Rights era, both grew up, and both saw the same historical things happen, and that yet they still have two different, sure. you know, opinions. Because I just figured that, well, for a certain generation, 
even if they really believe deep down that they would never see it, that they would still, you know, at least in public say, yeah, he going to get it. He going to go all the way. Because to me, it's like, well, isn't this what everybody fought for? Isn't this what y'all right. marched for? Some of y'all died for. Some, I'll never forget my, my, my father, uh, my, my, my grandfather, um, R.B. Williams. He used to, you know, he always tells a story about he um, knew Mega Evers. And Mega Evers was a really good friend of his. And matter of fact, he saw Mega Evers maybe about two weeks before he did, before he was killed. And um, you know about about how um, you know how great that was. How they were sitting there. He'd always say, "Son, you know, you just had to be there. You just had to be, you know, in the movement, even though we were scared to death because many of us didn't know." Um, and then even um, to hear the stories about growing up in a time period, even though you worked, um, they said they'll never forget the day they figured out. Well, they when it was announced that Dr. King had been killed, mm-hmm. he said the next day he went to work and the foreman got on the loudspeaker and said, we got him, you know, and just to hear those old stories of what they truly had to go through and to have that piece of history. We got him. Yeah, we, we got him. And, we got him. And, and I said, I just could not imagine, and, and I'm pretty sure my generation always says this, but I truly could not imagine growing up in a time period you know, as and, and be peaceful about it, you know, to whereas you really were not even considered a citizen, that that you have a president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower, when the Brown versus Board of Education came down, that decision came down. Mm-hmm. He says we, the only the comment he had for it, well, you know, I think we need to move on because this is nothing but just a distraction right. about it. Right. Um, I. I just couldn't imagine that. You know, you've got to go to that water fountain. You've got to go to that bathroom. You can't sit in this restaurant. You've got to go around to the back, knock on the door, and hopefully they didn't do anything to your food. I couldn't fathom that. Of course, my grandparents would say, well, I mean, yeah, you would. I mean, yeah, y'all, y'all talk about y'all would have fought, and they would have hung in. This and No, no, no. You would have still went to work. You still would have stepped off the street. You still would have put your head down because your your initial instinct of, look, I've got a family to feed, I've got people to take care of, would have kicked in. I still have my doubts about that, but, you know, hey. But, um you know, but but just for me to be able to one day be able to tell my children, my grandchildren, and say that you look, I lived history. You know, I, I've seen the first African American, you know, president. You know, I've seen the first uh, female mayor president here. Um, you know, get elected in Baton Rouge. You know, I've seen hopefully be able to say I've seen the first African American governor of Louisiana. Just to say that to show us shining examples that, you know, it can happen, that at least you can make it there. Now, of course, we can go back and forth and debate on whether or not once they made it there, they do a good job, okay job. But but for me, it's not even really about that, at least at that initial moment, because I know that there's some, that, that the next African-American president that's elected is going to be able to say that they believe they could do it because they saw President Obama make it. There's some young lady, there's, there's, there's some young uh, black girl in class who's able to look at Mayor Broom and say that I can be the next black female mayor of Baton Rouge because she was able to do it. Sure. So I think inspiration is a beautiful thing, we, having that example. We should all celebrate every time an African-American uh, moves into a place of political service. Uh, mayor, governor, uh, president, senator, congressman, state legislator. Uh, we, we, we should all celebrate that. What I'm saying to you, though, is it's not simply a matter of holding office. It's a matter of being able 
to shake up systems. Systems have been put into place that are designed to survive whoever is in office, whether it be a, a person like President Trump. Uh, uh, you know, we, 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 we watch national news every day and, and, and we uh, all shudder at the next thing that President Trump is going to do. But the system has been put in place to survive four years or eight years of a Donald Trump. A uh, system has been put in place to survive four or eight years of anyone serving in office. And so the deeper question is, after we have celebrated, and we should celebrate, and we should push for these people to, to hold office, the deeper question is, how do we change systems? How do we change a system that, that says that it's okay for a Howie Lake and a Blaine Salamone to continue to be police officers in Baton Rouge? How, how do we change a system that says that it's okay to uh, spend money to put schools in one section of the parish but won't spend money to put schools in the other part of the parish. Who's going to look at the system that allowed the northern part of the parish to become dilapidated mm -hmm. and abandoned as it has? It didn't just happen. There was a system in place that allowed it to happen. There was a system in place that, that caused it to happen. And I think that we have spent a lot of time uh, and, and perhaps too much time uh, dealing with putting people in selected offices and not doing enough to change systems. Right. And I think in order to, um, an effective way to do that is at first we as people have to stop blaming each other because you've got... Um, the younger generation, of course, my generation saying, well, well, we didn't cause it to be like this. I mean, y'all saw that y'all allowed this. Y'all had the opportunity to stop it and didn't. Right. And then, of course, you've got the older generation saying, well, y'all don't understand what else we were fighting at that right. point in time. So the first step and both is are right. to. Right. Yeah, both and, are right. Right. And, and I just think the first step is that, OK, you state your point. I state my point. Okay, we understand how we got here. We understand the history of how we got here. Now let's stop playing the blame game and stop passing it off by saying, well, it ain't my problem to fix. Well, it is your problem to fix because we have to live with it now. But once we put it all out on the table, then we can start saying, okay, well, now how do we move forward? Um, but, but just getting that initial conversation and getting past that wall of, I wasn't here when it happened. Right. You don't understand what was going on. It's that seems to be the wall we keep hitting example, but I'm going to say this, and I'm going to bring this to a close, because we have talked over an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. Uh, if I'm in a hole, mm -hmm. I don't need one person to stand up there and say, well, you know, I told you that there was a hole there last week, and, and you should have missed the hole, because if you'd been paying attention to me, you wouldn't have fallen into the hole. Right. Uh, and I don't need the guy on the other side saying, uh, you know, well, you're just a bad person because you're in that hole. And, uh, you know, I'm better than you because I'm not in the hole. What I need you to do is get me out of the hole. Right. <laughs> and, and 
this this age thing where you're the reason why it's like this and you don't understand why it's like this coming from two different sides to me you're missing the point the point is it's like this mm. you know you, you can argue about why it's like this after you change it right you can say you can defend your position as to how it got to be like this after you change it right but the main thrust of our energy should be not on who's right or who's wrong as to why it's like this, but how are we going to change it? Right. And I think that the church, I think that the African-American church still has a place in bringing about that change. Uh, uh, we just have to find a better way of communicating with every aspect of our community, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mr. Hyde, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yes, sir. Honored to be here. And uh, I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Oh, yes. And that brings this podcast to a close. We hope you all will tune in, join in, listen in next time. <laughs>